Before we begin, I want to thank the sponsor of Oil & Gas Upstream, Oliva Gibbs. Oliva Gibbs provides clear legal solutions to complex oil, gas, and mineral law issues nationwide. We believe that when we focus on serving people, good things happen in the lives of our clients and employees. We just happen to be a law firm. Learn more at oglawyers.com. Oil and Gas Production is the union of natural systems with advanced science and complex engineering. Smart people across the globe create this remarkable place we call Upstream, and each day brings a new challenge. This is the Oil and Gas Upstream Podcast, where we look at how these systems come together and learn from the people who make it happen. Welcome to Oil and Gas Upstream. I'm Elena Melkert, your host. Some of you know me as the former director for oil and gas upstream research at the U.S. Department of Energy. I retired from the the DOE, founded a small consultancy, and became a podcast host. Our sponsor is Oliva Gibbs, who provides clear legal solutions to complex oil, gas, and mineral law issues nationwide. You can learn more at oglawyers.com. And I want to ask you uh, to do me a big favor by answering a one-question survey. It takes about 10 seconds, and the link is in the show notes, and we will happily send you some stickers for your, your laptop or your hard hat or your friends. Also, we just started publishing our weekly newsletter called The Sunday Update. Check it out for inside scoop on your favorite podcasters, behind the scenes, and industry insights and discounts. Sign up for our Sunday Update link in the show notes below. Also, I invite you to go to OGGN website to take a look at the new merchandise that's available now. Maybe even pick up the oil and gas upstream t-shirt with our with the new logo. And the link is also in the show notes. And now I'd like to introduce you to today's guest, Lisa Henthorne, Chief Scientist at Eris Water. Eris Water is a midstream water company. Lisa, welcome to our show. Thanks so much, Elena. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's a pleasure having you. You, I, you and I have been trying to do this for some time now, and so I'm glad we we're finally able um, to get together. So, um, Lisa, tell us a little bit about your background and maybe uh, share with uh, our listeners uh, about midstream water. That might be a new concept for some people. Um, you're the first guest that we're hosting um, who's a subject matter expert on produced water. Uh, we've alluded to it in other um, shows, other interviews, uh, but you are the person. So we want to hear everything you want to share with us about produced water. Sure, I'm glad to. So uh, as background, I uh, started my career um, after chemical engineering um, graduate school. I started to work for Chevron and uh, worked upstream and uh, really enjoyed it. And then I started a family. And uh, in those days, this was a, a many moons ago, I, uh, they didn't have much opportunity to work part-time or flexibility. Anyway, I moved over and um, began research um, in water uh, activities for the Bureau of Reclamation under the Department of Interior. Right. And they gave me a lot of flexibility to work however many hours I wanted to work and those things like that for a number of years when my children were small. And um, so I really focused my research uh, on desalination, which is um, was part of my thesis research in grad school. Um, and I then stayed in the Bureau for uh, about uh, 15 years and um, did a lot of work overseas for the Bureau. They were highly active in the Middle East, 
Um, they supported the State Department uh, in setting up the Middle East Desalination Research Center. Um, I got to go and help with that um, program, which was a real pleasure. And, and then I w was the um, coordinator for the research across the Bureau of Reclamation, which included water and power and building dams, all kinds of, uh, you know, interesting things. But I really missed water itself. And uh, I had the opportunity to take a position uh, with CH2M Hill, which is now part of Jacobs. And I went back to the Middle East and set up an office in Dubai. So my focus there was building desalination plants. And I worked in Asia and Australia and the Middle East, uh, leading their desalination program. And um, then towards the end of the 2000s period, I came back to oil and gas and really focused on produced water, as well as some desalination for some enhanced oil recovery. And then really began just working on how do we desalinate produced water? How can we get a, a re, make this a resource out of a waste? Um, and so a lot of my focus over the last decade has been that very point. And I've been involved in a, a number of really exciting pilot studies to demonstrate that we can treat this produced water and um, gain real value from that uh, process. And Eris Water as you mentioned, is a midstream water company. And, uh, and I, I think you're right. I, I think a lot of people, even in upstream oil and gas, don't really uh, fully are fully aware of, of what this role, new infrastructure role is in our industry. And uh, it's primarily at this point in time, it's largely based in the Permian Basin. And as, of course, we started moving large volumes of water, produced water around in the Permian Basin, it became apparent that trucking and moving this, these large volumes uh, in very small uh, quantities didn't make sense. And so um, there became a big investment in the infrastructure to build pipelines. And so similar to what we think of midstream as the interim between upstream and downstream uh, in oil and gas, the midstream water really provides that conduit of the water um, from, uh, you know, the production. And then, uh, interestingly, in the Permian Basin, we've really transitioned to recycling that water. So we don't just dispose of it into saltwater disposal wells, which historically is how we have had to deal with produced water throughout North America production, uh, onshore production. Uh, we've now transitioned in the Permian especially to recycling that water back to completions. Um, so we have to dispose of less water. But Midstream does that recycling, those recycling activities, and um, also does the disposal uh, for the operators. So that's the role of Midstream Water. Wow, that's a lot. And you did exactly the kind of explanation that um, I hoped that you would. So thank you. But there is a lot to unpack there. So, so wow, thank you so much. I have a million questions. So for some of our readers, some of our listeners, not readers, but listeners, um, the notion of produced water isn't really clear to them. And so um, in uh, unconventional, I mean, in conventional reservoirs, we understand that uh, gravity drainage is what separates the fluids that are in the reservoir and uh, the top is gas natural gas um, and then the sort of the middle layer layer would be the liquid oil and then uh, the bottom liquid would be the water it being the most dense and it's part of production in that it supports the reservoir pressure so that we can actually produce the the oil piece but you always get water and gas when you produce uh, you know oil 
um, unless there's a special reservoir, special conditions, but you always get, you know, get the water. So before it can go to market, the water has to be taken down. And that water that we're talking about is the produced water that, that you're talking about. Now, when we move to unconventionals, we've got the fact that we're injecting a lot of water with respect to hydraulic fracturing, and that water comes back, and then there's the water that comes in with the production and the like. And so, so water is integral to the part to, to producing oil and gas, whether it's conventional or unconventional. And in the past, it's been treated as a waste, and it's just like a nuisance. You have to get rid of it. There wasn't anything to do, and it would cost money to to um, to dispose of it, if you will. But the concept of transforming that from a waste to a resource—that's really exciting. And so, tell us a little bit more about about that piece of the midstream, if you will, midstream water. Yeah. So there's of course a cost associated with having to dispose of this water. You've got to pressurize it sufficiently to get it back into the ground, uh, as well as you've got to transport transport it in some cases, long distances. Um, and you've, your, your listeners are probably aware of some of the seismicity concerns that have arose over the last uh, decade. Um, some of those started in the Oklahoma area. Um, now we have similar concerns uh, in the Permian Basin. And those concerns are uh, focused around, in fact, the injection volumes and pressures uh, associated with disposal of this produced water. And so, um, you know, long term, we're looking at how do we relieve some of the stress on those disposal wells? Um, there is a finite amount of, of volume available for disposal. And so, you know, we're, we're obviously looking ahead, wanting to um, ensure that our disposal capacity is, is preserved and that we can maintain production. Um, some of the aspects of, of produced water, I think maybe that your listeners um, some of your listeners not be, may be uh, very familiar with, but the volume of water relative to the volume of oil produced over time grows. We make more and more water um, relative to the amount of oil. And therefore, we have to dispose more of and more. Water. Yeah. So when you're planning, as, as all of our you know, engineers and our operators are thinking through long term, um, how do we dispose of this growing volume? So those sorts of issues contribute to the um, planning of alternative methods of, uh, of how to use or dispose of our water. And particularly when you're in areas like the Permian Basin that suffers from enormous water scarcity, uh, it doesn't take a lot of thinking to come to the conclusion that, hey, we should be able to do something useful with this water. And, you know, the the question at the end of the day was, well, how much can it, will it cost? And can we do it safely? And can we, uh, if we do use this water, you know, how would we treat it? And uh, how would we ensure that the environment and, uh, you know, human health and other associated risks are protected? So a lot of the work that's being done now, and some of this work is being supported uh, uh, from a planning process and, and development through the state of New Mexico and Texas and their produced water research consortiums that have been formed uh, by these state legislatures. Um, we are planning, you know, pilot piloting projects where, in fact, we put the different treatment technologies through rigorous testing over a significant period of time so that we can then sample the water and understand any associated risk with 
using that water for various purposes, as well as how much is it going to cost us? And, you know, how do you compare different treatment technologies? You've got to have some pre-treatment in front of the desalination. You have to have some post-treatment downstream. So in the Permian Basin, unfortunately, the salinity of our produced water is quite high, uh, generally in the 100,000 to 150,000 milligram per liter PPM. So, so Lisa, and, let me interrupt you about the salinity. Is that so with people are familiar with beach with you know ocean water seawater and so is that high compared to that i mean give us a give us a little marker yes three to four times higher than seawater (gasps) that's a lot of water yes and if it was just the salinity of seawater it the whole process would be pretty straightforward because we know how to desalinate seawater uh, salinity quite cost effectively um but our salinities are higher and um, it limits, um, in, m- historically, over the last decade or so, we've, we've been restricted more to distillation-type technologies that are um, less dependent on low salinities. We can desalinate a high-salinity water um, quite effectively. Uh, but there's a cost to that, the energy cost to have to move the water you know, from a liquid phase to a vapor phase back to a liquid phase is quite high. Um, and so we're, you know, we're looking at alternatives as well as how can we do it? If we do have to distill the water, how can we do it as cost effectively as possible? How can we recover as much energy out of the process to make it as efficient as possible? Now, that's the Permian Basin. There are basins in the United States that have salinities closer or even lower than that of seawater uh, salinities. Those basins are, um, are, are very fortunate uh, because the cost of of reusing that water and other uh, applications is is quite a bit less expensive. Um, having said that, you know one of our biggest limiting factors is that um, we don't have regulation today, as as your listeners probably are aware, to use the produced water even after treatment outside the oil and gas industry in very very limited. Uh, Uh, opportunities associated with outside oil and gas. So part of the work that is being done now in these consortiums, as I'm referring to, and by some of the operators and groups that are working together, uh, is really to provide this data through the piloting process to the regulators to give them confidence in how they would regulate use of this treated produced water outside our industry. So that's an important aspect of these piloting programs that are uh, ongoing is providing data, not just for our internal use and determining cost and comfort around risk, but to the regulators as well as to the stakeholder community, right? Because this is, this will be something that is used and, and of course used to the benefit of the communities. We can use the water in industries, attract new industries to this water scarce area. We can potentially use the water in ag applications, particularly non-consumptive ag applications, uh, like cotton, for instance, which is a, a you know historically grown in this part of the country in West Texas. Um, and, and then kind of um, one of the ultimate goals is to be able to use this water in the environment, use it to supplement the Pegas River, for instance, or you know, other surface discharge type applications. But of course, we would never do that until we had the confidence that this water could be treated safely and con- consistently treated yeah, safely. Yeah. Right? Um, and so those are all 
aspirational goals that we have to um, be able to have a positive impact on, on these communities and in these basins and put this water. It's, it's one of the few sources of new water that, that there exists, right? Yes, some of this water is what we refer to as the flow back, that water that you used in the hydraulic fracturing process that comes back up, but a lot of this is formation, yeah. right? So that's, that's water that isn't in our, our current hydrologic cycle, right? And we, we don't have many ways to increase the water supply in our hydrologic cycle. And so this is one way to do that. And so it is, in fact, new water. And um, yeah, not only have we really reduced using any existing water in our hydraulic fracturing activities and recycling this water, but we're looking to the future of which we could augment our existing water supply with this new water source. Yeah. So, Lisa, you said that there were some limited uses that uh, are available for treated produced water. What what would be an example of that use? Well, um, in the state of California, you may be familiar with some projects there that where they have used the water in ag applications for over 20 years. Uh, there are some great technical publications um, that have gone in and evaluated the health of the soil after use of this water uh, for, for a few decades. And um, they also um, use the water in industrial applications uh, in California and uh, have been doing so again for decades yeah. and have demonstrated that, you know, it can be done safely and consistently. Um, so, I mean, those are a few examples. Yeah. There, there are some others, uh, you know, there are some uh, cases in uh, Pennsylvania, for instance, where uh, small volumes are treated for surface discharge, uh, discharged into the rivers, for instance, but they're small volumes. And one of the things that's important to know about the Permian is that these are very large volumes, right? So the scale of what we're considering is very different than what is being done today in the state of Pennsylvania, for mm -hmm. instance. Uh, the Permian Basin uh, produces about 15 million barrels of produced water per day, uh, and it's grown, oh. right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. So with respect to, you know, production, um, the water is evolving, if you will, in terms of character and volume. As you said, um, the water-oil ratio tends to grow in older wells. Uh, and so there it's an increasing volume of water. Uh, and then the quality of the water, what's in it and, you know, what what is not in it, all of that seems to change over time, even in the same well. So you go from well to well to well, it may not be, even though it's the same reservoir, it may not be the same for whatever reason. Um, there's probably reasons. Um, and then with respect to California, in terms of the use there, California is, uh, used to be, I should say, the third largest oil and gas producing you know, nation or uh, state in the in the country, but even just Kern County alone, uh, which is Central California, would have been, um, you know, as a country by itself, could have been the tenth largest oil producing nation in the world. You know, if it was in just that small area. Now, California has different policies in place now, so that's not the case. But the produced water is uh, is really valuable um, in terms of places like the desert where, you know, this this production comes from and this produced water. So so it's really exciting that um, the California would uh, have such a program for produced water and has been in place, I guess, oil and gas produced water for over 20 years for these uh, for these other uses. So. 
Well, I wanted to ask you about um, disposal wells. Like some people might not be uh, aware that we're not talking about um, shallow injection. We're talking about deeper injection. Do you have some some things you could share with us about uh, the character of disposal wells, maybe locations and and the like? Um, well, it's not an area that I focus a lot of my effort uh, and energy on, but um, you know, Eris Water, we do have um, disposal wells, of course. Um, you know, they're throughout uh, Texas and New Mexico, um, more in Texas than New Mexico, of course, for the Permian Basin applications. Um, they operate, uh, you know, at, at high pressures, um, and they have, a, you know, a variety of depths, uh, you know, shallow, medium, and, and you know, deep, deep depths of, of where we dispose to. And, you know, this is part of the... Um, the whole equation around cause of seismicity is really understanding how the interaction between the different disposal wells and the volumes and where they're injecting into relative to those others. And obviously trying to balance that, really trying to understand, you know, where are the volumes limited and um, where is there communication going on, you know, between depths and, and really getting a, a good understanding of the subsurface. Um, and so, you know, there are a number of experts in the, in the basin that, you know, understand this, of course, much, much better than I and can speak to your audience. But um, it is a, a very important topic now and, uh, you know, relative to the seismic risk. And people are obviously spending a lot of effort on, studying this and understanding it to maximize the volume that is available over time in the in this area. And so just for people who are not subject matter experts, the notion of shallow is not the same as uh, groundwater that we're talking about where that we drink that water, not drinking water, right? It's much deeper than that, right? Even the shallow. Absolutely. Ones. Yes. Correct. It's much deeper than your groundwater aquifer. Yeah. yeah. What are some of the um, research fronts or perhaps technology fronts or things that are trends perhaps that are happening in the produced water arena? Yeah, I, um, I've been fascinated by watching the evolution of the recycling activities I mentioned earlier. That is taking this produced water and then recycling it to subsequent completions and the level of treatment. There's been a lot of effort on how do we treat this water? Obviously we want to do it as cost effectively as possible, but we need to treat to the standards of our, uh, you know, who's purchasing this water to re recycle. And, um, you know, you saw five or six years ago, a lot of different uh, perspectives on, you know, how should the water be treated? What level of treatment do you require? What turbidity, what iron levels? And, uh, you know, over the course of five years, there's been, you know, a narrowing now of, of technologies that have been found to be, you know, cost effective on the scale that's needed for, uh, you know, making this as uh, efficient of a process as possible. So a lot of those technologies are, um, they're robust, um, they include oxidizing the water, um, adding in some cases a coagulant or flocculant to uh, you know, grow the, uh, the flock as large as possible before you float it out using a dissolved air flotation. That's kind of the most common technique that's used. And um, it can, again, be done on a large scale. 
quite cost effectively and, um, and it, you know, provides the quality of recycled water that's needed. It is not sufficient uh, in, in some cases for, you know, treatment for a reuse activity, beneficial reuse activity outside the oil and gas industry. Again, we have to desalinate the water. We have to get the sodium and the chloride and the calcium, magnesium, all of the constituents, salt, and all of the hydrocarbon-related constituents out of the water. So additional treatment is required for that, as well as we have to then do some post-treatment of the water, which would be to remove some other constituents that might not come out in the desalination process. Again, we kind of call this polishing treatment. It's, it's making sure we get every last, you know, tiny bit of uh, contaminant or pollutant out of that water. So that could include removing of ammonia, for instance. We have quite a bit of ammonia in the water and in the Permian Basin. So it's that type of treatment of, again, ensuring that there are no hydrocarbon-related contaminants left in the water, no ammonia, any really constituents that could impact the environment. Um, and, and then it's, of course, wanting to structure that quality to how that water will be used. If it's in an industrial application where they need ultra-pure water, then that water would go through an additional treatment step, for instance, for an ultra-pure water type application. Uh, for an ag application, you have um, considerations like you need to make sure that there's very, very low boron levels in the water. A lot of um, plants are very sensitive to boron. Well, we have boron in our produced water, so you have to consider and how you're going to make sure you have no boron. Um, you know, ammonia, well, some crops might like a little of ammonia, right? It's part of the fertilizer ingredient. So there's some thoughts on, well, geez, how much ammonia should we leave in the water to really help maybe in some of these applications? You also have to think about the, the relative ratio of your divalent ions, your hardness ions like calcium, magnesium relative to your sodium to, um, we refer to it as the sort sodium adsorption ratio to ensure the long-term health of the soils that you might be applying this water to. So all those considerations have to go into effect to as, as you think through how are we going to treat this water? And then, you know, at the end of the day, how much is it going to cost us to treat the water, right? And the good news is by treating this water and using it, you get to eliminate the disposal step, or at least a lot of the disposal step. Um, and then, uh, you know, Perhaps you don't have to send the water as far in a pipeline, so your transportation costs may be less. Another thing that's really important to think about, too, is that the produced water after we desalinate it has a lot of the water that's left over. We refer to it as a brine or concentrate, has a lot of minerals in the, in the water. And so, you know, how could we potentially recover some of those minerals, and then use those for the benefit of, again, you know, our our communities and uh, our companies. So our EVs. being able to, yeah, exactly. And, you know, some basins have a lot of lithium in the water. Permian Basin, unfortunately, doesn't have a lot of lithium, but it has a lot of other minerals that have uh, a lot of intrinsic value. And so looking at how do you cost effectively recover some of these. So that's a part of the overall equation of of taking this produced water and making it something of value to our community. Yeah, yeah. It's going, yeah. it's not just the water piece of it, but it's also the minerals. Right, right. And with respect to the minerals, um, 
you know, people who are outside the oil and gas sector may not uh, appreciate or understand how come all of these things are in there. So I want you to help me tell a story. I'll, I'll start it. Uh, so basically, um, millions and millions and millions of years ago, um, as the earth was formed and forming and the waters were separated by the land and all of the above, However it happened, and geologists know this much better than I do, so I'm not going to try to tell that story too carefully, but water is trapped in the very, very deep subsurface. And for millennia, it's in contact with uh, rock. And rocks are, you know, made up of all of the elements on the periodic table. And so this, this uh, over time, the water sort of dissolves some of the edges of the rock and the different kinds of uh, minerals and molecules that are, uh, and elements that are, uh, atoms, I should say, that are in the rock end up in the water. And over time, uh, more and more and more. So that's how these things end up in the water. It's not like there's any injection of these um, these constituents into that deep subsurface. It's just part of the formation of the earth, if you will. Um, that the water has all of these things in it. So that's one of the reasons why water from location to la location, you talked about the Permian Basin water is different from. Very uh, Yeah, it varies so much. And then as you're producing and you're causing movement of the fluids in the subsurface, then that's why the quality of the water changes over time as new waters uh, sort of take up the space from the production, from the liquids and, or I should say, the fluids that were removed from the reservoir. So, so more and more come in, you know, there. And so it really is, uh, I want to say, I don't want to say a surprise, but it's not really well known the quality of the water when it comes to the surface. And that's why you were saying about the, the various tests that have to be done and then the decisions, the commercial decisions have to be made as to, you know, how clean is clean for what purpose, and then is there a value proposition associated with uh, removing those constituents? And then with respect to new minerals or minerals that we're finding more value for nowadays, um, that um, that there are you know uh, cost-effective processes for removing that. It's just a whole value proposition of what's in the water and what do you want to keep in the water and what you want to take out of the water, and then how that manifests itself in some sort of value. So that's about right, isn't it? <laughs> no, it's very good. No, I, I mean, the whole idea is that, you know, this water exists and um, it's water we have never had access to really in terms of any use of it. And we've reached a point in, you know, water treatment technology development that, you know, we're approaching being able to do this at a price point that makes sense relative to the value that the water can offer us as a society. So it's very exciting in terms of, um, you know, looking to the future and, and bringing that value to, to our society. Um, it's, it's a nice thing to think through. Right. And it's possible through technology advancements, research and in making those investments and then uh, tra translating those uh, ideas into, or that science, into technology, which is why they call the call us the essential engineer, right? The essential engineer to translate the science into something that has value to to mankind. 
um, by bringing it uh, bring it forth to market. So, yeah, what produced water is just so fascinating to me. I, I remember before I left the Department of Energy, there was uh, a lot of initiatives associated with produced water and water in general because water is so important to life that uh, having you know uh, the government be attentive to it, all the governments, right, state and local as well as federal, be attentive to water, all water. Um, and then in the 30 plus oil and gas producing states in in our country that that they that those uh, states have policies or um, regulations uh, that lead toward greater and greater uh, acknowledgement of the importance of water and the sources of water like produced water and other uh, waters that aren't necessarily rainfall, if you will. So so that's that's kind of exciting that we're really attentive to some of those questions. Well, Lisa, we're almost at yeah. the end of our time. Are there other things you wanted to share with us? I mean, gosh, this is this topic is so big, and you know so much. Well, no, it's. Um, I think I, I mentioned earlier the the states of you know Texas and New Mexico have done a great job in creating these consortiums to uh, bring the industry together to work collaboratively. Um, so uh, you know, this is a. a and, and certainly there's lots of good examples historically of our industry working really closely together to solve problems. But I've been super impressed with, um, you know, how people are coming together and, um, you know, pooling their resources to do these pilots and um, listening to, you know, a broad uh, audience of stakeholders as to concerns and understanding risk. And so it's just been a a really exciting time, and I appreciate the leadership of the states and in, in helping us through, uh, you know, solving a lot of these problems. And um, you know, I look forward to coming back a year from now and giving you an update on a lot of the pilot activities that are uh, just getting ready to take off, and uh, you know, talking through, you know, the success of those. So I look, I look forward to uh, to visiting with you again in about. 20 oh, absolutely! Love to have you back. Love to have you back. And just for uh, folks who um, may not be familiar with Produce Water and learned a little bit more, I was part of a, of a book, a textbook on Produced Water. I wrote a chapter, the overview chapter called Produced Water. The editors are uh, Olayinka Ogunzola uh, and um, uh, others who were uh, put the book together and it's available on Amazon, but it's, it's kind of a primer on uh, produced waters. And obviously you've taken us way over the top in terms of that. The book is called Solid Liquid uh, Separation Technologies for Produced Water. Long title, but it, it is a technical a technical book. But um, it, this is such an important topic and, and you certainly know. Could you tell us something about the Produced Water Society before we go? Oh, absolutely. So, um, you know, talking about collaboration, I mean, the industry uh, has a, an incredible organization called the Produced Water Society uh, that meets a couple of times a year, uh, you know, coming together and discussing, you know, different advancements, uh, how to, you know, work through challenges, getting a perspective on, you know, what does the future look like as we were talking about, you know, the increasing volumes of produced water you know, giving everyone a common understanding of what that looks like going forward. And so we, we welcome, uh, you know, anyone joining the organization. You can go online, Produce Water Society, and you know, take a look at um, the, the organization and what it provides. But um, they meet in Houston in February every year and then in the uh, early fall in Midland, Texas, historically. There's also a society in the Middle East. 
Um, so, you know, there's, there's one near you, I guess. All your <laughs> listeners, there's <laughs> good. one near you. Well, we are heard exactly. all over the world, so <laughs> it's good to know. Very good. Well, Lisa Henthorne, Chief Scientist at Eris Water, thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you for inviting thank me. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Please give us a review and tell us what you like and what you'd like to hear more about on future podcasts. This is Elena Melkert, your host for Oil & Gas Upstream. More next time. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Upstream podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.